I would ask you to turn in your Bibles this evening to the seventh chapter of the prophecy of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 7. We come not only to a new chapter, we come to a new section in the book. And we not only come to a new chapter and a new section in the book, but we come to a new kind of way that God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah. You can see it easily if you have a Bible like mine that uh, puts the poetic portions in poetic form. And so you see that on all these uh, previous chapters, largely, these are poet poems that, uh, in the form of Hebrew poetry that uh, Jeremiah composed to give the distillation of the message that he gave to Israel. Did he preach it in poetry? Uh, probably not. But he put it into poetry because it's a form in which we can more readily uh, remember uh, and, and be impressed with the things that Jeremiah had to say as poetry has striking images that uh, not only inform the mind but uh, inspire the imagination it uh, gives a deep impression of what God is, is doing I mean you can say that uh, you are unjust and you are unfair and you are not giving place to the widow and the orphan but to say as Jeremiah says like a cage full of birds their houses are full of deceit. Therefore they have become great and rich and have grown fat and sleek. And they know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. In, in, in prose you don't tend to put things that way. It's more like you know the Sergeant Joe Friday, the facts are just the facts. But in poetry, um, it just gives a expression to it in metaphor and uh, various uh, uh, literary devices that uh, just puts the truth in powerful uh, form and and powerful focus. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper, nor do they defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, says Yahweh. Well, similar concerns are taken up in chapter 7. The injustice of the people, their failure to plead the cause of the widow and the orphan, but it's put in a prose form. And we recall how the writer of the Hebrews tells us that God spoke in times past to our fathers and the prophets in many times and in many ways. There's different times God spoke, and different periods of the history of the nation of Israel, giving something of a progressive revelation of his mind and will, but also in many ways. Uh, he spoke in narratives. He spoke in the stories that we read about in the Old Testament. He spoke in poetry. He spoke in prose. He spoke in psalm. He spoke in proverb. He spoke in many different ways. And um, it's the same God speaking. And it's the same truth being spoken of. But again, it speaks in a different manner. And I think that the prose parts of Jeremiah contribute to our understanding of the message because it helps to take those poetic parts that are sometimes just filled with image after image after image after image and it kind of just distills it into manageable proportions. It brings it sort of into something of a discipline. It brings it into something where it's a clearer understanding of the things that Jeremiah is saying. Not that Jeremiah is terribly opaque. I mean, judgment is judgment, and wrath is wrath, and disaster is disaster, and invasion is an invasion. But yet it's placed, put in such a way that, that sometimes we, we just see metaphor upon metaphor. Sometimes they get all mixed up. But the prose parts just tend to clarify things. It tends to just take the same realities and bring them into a clearer form. And then it also brings it into a clearer form in terms of a narrative. 
uh, it's a story that, that, that is being told of an incident that happened in Jeremiah's life. Not just that he went out and he preached in a poetic fashion and you know, people either heard or didn't hear. Most of the time they didn't hear. And we find it here in this passage. But we find that the word of God, or the word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh is what begins this section. It is a word that came to Jeremiah. And it's a word that commanded Jeremiah to stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say. And so we have Jeremiah going up to the temple. We have Jeremiah taking a place of prominence in the house of God so that those who came to worship through the gates of the temple where he stood would hear this message God had given him. Now, there's no place in this section that says and Jeremiah ended his message and then left the temple and uh, went somewhere else. It doesn't say that anywhere. But apparently there are is a place where he just stopped the temple sermon and really went on to other things um, that uh, you see later on. Uh, God comes to him in verse 16, for instance, and says, As for you, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or, pr- uh, or prayer for them. And do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Apparently at that point, temple sermon ceased. Jeremiah's temple sermon is really the first 15 verses, whether he went back to the temple and said other things. But one of the things I think you can consider that uh, makes it, to me at least, clear that these words um, of uh, the first 15 verses were the, constituted the temple message is that in chapter 26, we have something similar occurring. And in my own judgment, I think this is a replay, a reprise of the temple message. It's being told to us again in chapter 26, where it says that in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, and so we give him more information about when this took place, took place in the, in the, in the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, uh, the king of Judah, this word came from the Lord. And of course, uh, chapter 27 says it came from the Lord to Jeremiah. And thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord. All the words that I command to you, speak to them and do not hold back a word. And maybe they will listen. So there was some hope that God sending Jeremiah up to the temple to bring this message. Even at this point, there was hope that they would that they would turn from, uh, uh, it may be they will listen, and everyone turn from his evil way, that I may relent of the disaster I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. Now again, you read the poetry, and it almost seems as if the invasion is a dead certainty. Historically it was. The people didn't repent, they didn't relent, they didn't, God didn't relent, um, because they maintained their evil ways. But we know the story, we know the history of it, but at that point, there's still hope. And Jeremiah is sent to preach in the temple with some measure of hope that the people would turn from their evil ways and God would relent of the disaster he intended to do to them because of their evil deeds. And you shall say to them, thus says Yahweh, if you will not listen to me to walk in my law, that I have set before you, and to listen to the words of my servant, the prophets, whom I sent to you urgently, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like that, like Shiloh, and I will make this city 
a curse for all the nations of the earth. Again, uh, uh, you'll see as we go through the passage in chapter 7 that what we have in chapter 7 is an extended version of this in chapter 26, which is a distillation of what you find in chapter 7. And you'll see some of the notes. God comes telling him to go to the temple, stand in the court, speak to the cities, to all who come to worship in the house of the Lord. Don't hold back. Say that which I've given you to speak. And maybe they will repent, but likely they won't. And in fact, they they didn't. Um, And the result of that will be that they will be like Shiloh. They will be like Shiloh. He will make this city a curse, just like he made Shiloh, which is the place that the Ark of the Covenant came when they entered into the land. That was the place where worship was brought and sacrifice was brought and likely it was destroyed by the Philistines. And that place of worship, that place of sanctuary, that place in which the blessing of God came to the nation and God spoke to them and directed them from Shiloh, um, that came to an end. So no human sanctuary, even if God says, there I will make my name known, there my presence will be. It's not an extended guarantee that it will always be the case, regardless of what people do. The assumption is, if you fellowship with me, and walk before me, and honor me, and then I will continue to have my presence with you, but people contend to contend to continue to attend to the sanctuary, to go to a temple, to attend a church meeting, even when God has long, long since abandoned the place. And I think that's what you see happening in the life of the nation. And this is what Jeremiah is sent to make clear to the people that it's not without respect to your ways. It's not without respect to whether you've heard my voice. It's not without respect to whether you've obeyed my laws and have endeavored to uh, plead for the widow and the orphan and the and the sojourner. Um, you can't ignore these concerns that are my concerns and still think you can come into this place and think you can get a hearing from me and I'm going to meet with you. Don't think that this is going to guarantee my continued presence with you, nor is it going to guarantee your continued presence in the land because, hey, the temple is there in Jerusalem. So, hey, God's going to protect us because the temple is some measure, some guarantee of our security and our safety. No, no, no. It's not the temple that's the the mark of security. It's the promise of God to be with his people. Um, Again, when the temple was built, Solomon prayed a prayer in which he said, if my people uh, turn to this house and pray in the light of their need than you in heaven here. It's the God in heaven we really look to. It's not a God who just uh, manifests a presence in a given locality, and we think that presence is guaranteed to us, regardless of what we do. That simply, is, is, it's a wrong confidence. It's a wrong trust. And one of the things that uh, Jeremiah is concerned to say in this passage is that the people failed to hear God's words. They failed to, to listen to the things that God had said. Verse 13, And now because you've done all these things, says the Lord, when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. You did not listen. I spoke to you persistently, and you did not listen. Verse 26, Yet they did not listen to me, or incline their ear 
but stiffened their necks, and they did worse than their fathers. Verse 27, you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You hear the repetition of that? They will not listen to you. They have not listened to you. God's word was sent to them. God's word was to be heard. They did not listen. And in the failure to listen to God's words, you know what they did? They substituted other words. And it's what he calls in this passage, deceptive words, lying words. Verse 4, do not trust in these deceptive words. You don't hear God's words of truth? You'll fall for deceptive words. You will embrace that which will lead you astray and be deceptive words. Uh, Verse 8, behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. You won't hear my words, you'll get deceptive words, and you'll trust in them. And part of those deceptive words is the confidence in the temple, because it's there, we're secure, regardless of what we do. It's a confidence that we can live as we please, do what we want, and you come to the temple, and worship at the temple, and do the rites and the rituals, and that will atone in some fashion for all of the wickedness that we have been guilty of. These are all deceptive words. And Jeremiah is sent to the place where the people who have not heard God's voice, though God sent his prophets, and they've substituted for God's words these deceptive words. Jeremiah, you've got to go up to the gate of the temple, uh, the, the gate of the Lord's house, and, the, and, and make things right. Proclaim to them the truth. Now, this was hazard of business. If you read the epilogue or you read the aftermath of what happened in chapter 26, Because in chapter 26, when the people hear these words that Jeremiah proclaimed to them, you know what they said? Jeremiah must die. He must die. How dare he? How dare he speak these words against the temple? How dare he speak these words against the nation? How dare he say that our tenancy in the land is not secure? I mean, God's promised us this land. This is our land. And yet God did not give the land grant to the people of Israel for no... uh, uh, without conditions and qualifications again he said to them in the law that he's casting out the people in the land, the Amorites because their iniquity was full and the land would vomit them out and he told them if, if my people commit the sins of the Canaanites walk in the ways of the Egyptians walk in the ways of the nations of, of, that surround them then he would evict them from this land as well the land would, as it vomited out, the former inhabitants, it would vomit out this people. And so Jeremiah is sent to the temple to stand in the gate to proclaim this word that sets the record straight before the people that these are deceptive things that they believed and they need to put away deceptive words and they need to start listening to God's words and not reject them and not turn away from them. So the message is, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. What's the first responsibility of the people? Hear the words of God. Hear the words of God's prophet. It's incumbent upon the preacher then to preach the word of God. (laughs) It's incumbent upon the people who hear the word of God to receive the word of God. Yes, to go back through the Word, to make certain it's what's in the Word of God, but uh, you know, again, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. We don't just take it on the say-so of, of 
you know, there were false prophets in Israel. And they had to be clear that Jeremiah was a true prophet of God. They had all the marks of true prophecy. And again and again, as you go through the book, you see that that was affirmed over and over and over again. You know, there, were, there, were, there was another prophet, uh, I believe Hananiah was his name, later on, I think in chapter 25 and 6, um, somewhere in there, comes later. And he came, and instead of, instead of affirming what Jeremiah was teaching the people, that this people is going to be sent into exile, 70 years of captivity, he says, no, 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 two years and the Babylonians are defeated. And Jeremiah turns around and says, oh, no, no, no. Two years and you're a dead man, Hananiah. <laughs> and within those two years, Hananiah surely did die. So who is the true prophet of God? I mean, God makes it clear who his true servants are, who the true prophets are, because the things that God's word declares are things that come true. They're things that affirm and do not deny previous revelation that's given. We have all these safeguards so we would know the voice of prophecy. Not just some guy that comes into a temple and starts to spout off his opinions and say, thus says the Lord after those opinions. Jeremiah is a true prophet. Be given the word of God. And he goes into the prominent place of the city to proclaim the word of God. Of course, he got into trouble for it. They were going to put him to death. God delivered him on that occasion. But you find in other times he was in the temple. He proclaimed the word of God. But you see it at the end of uh, chapter 19. He's in the temple again. Uh, By the time you get to like 36, you have Jeremiah writing out a sermon and he gives it to Baruch to go into the temple to preach because he was banned from the temple. He couldn't even go into the temple any longer. So, you know, you wonder why it was that the people said, uh, when Jesus said, who men say that I am? And the answer was, some say you are Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Uh, why would they think of Jeremiah? Well, again, Jesus went up to the temple. Much of his ministry was conducted in the temple at the, at the feasts. And again and again and again, he was getting into trouble with the temple authorities, sending temple guards to arrest him in the Feast of Tabernacles in John 7. And ultimately, it was as he came into this temple, came into the city of Jerusalem, that ultimately um, they were looking to see him delivered over to the Romans, and they fulfilled their designs and their desires. But Jesus centered his ministry in the temple, and Jesus set the record clear in the temple of what God's word was. And you know, he speaks in the, in the temple, that, that great uh, speech that's given in um, John chapter 7, where he speaks about going through the gate of the temple. And he's not doing sleight of hand. He's not looking to uh, be someone who enters in without authorization. He's the fully authorized, sent one of God. And he comes into the temple to call out his sheep by name. And he gathers his own flock from Israel. And he brings them out. He brings them out. See, not every worshiper in the Jerusalem temple were hearing Jesus' voice. But his sheep would hear his voice. And his sheep would be led out. And his sheep would then constitute a new flock that he would gather, in which then he becomes the gate of entry. Jesus went through the gates of the temple. Now he becomes the gate of entry into the flock of God's people to become a true sheep of Christ's flock as Christ gathers his flock. And he says, other sheep I have which are not of this fold, of the Jewish fold. The Gentiles also would be gathered in. But the chief 
point of it is God's sheep hear the voice of the Lord. My sheep hear my voice and, and they follow. And there were those who heard the voice of God in Jeremiah's preaching. There weren't many, but there were some. And again, Jeremiah did have his defenders. He did have his helpers. He did have a small flock of people who he who heard the voice of God. And many of the exiles would continue to hear the voice of God as they brought it to exile. We had a prophet among us. He told us the truth. And he prepared us for this invasion. And he prepared us for the things that were to come. And his words need to continue to sustain us and continue to uphold us because this is the word of God's truth. These are not deceptive words. These are words of God's truth that are to be received. So Jeremiah, go to the temple. Stand at the gate. Perhaps the prominent gate. Some of the rabbis thought it was the eastern gate. That was the main gate. Likely, that's where he was. In the place of greatest prominence, where greatest numbers of people would come through that gate to enter into the temple for for worship. And call upon them to heed your words. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel. Yahweh of armies, the God of Israel. You have an army that's going to come and devastate this land. You want someone to act in your defense? Well, there's a God of armies who will protect his people, who care for his people, who will lead his people through the devastation that is still to come and lead his people into places of safety and of deliverance and of ultimate peace and exile. And he's going to bring them back as well. This is the God who is to be the object of your confidence and trust. The, God, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel. Well, what's the message that's given to the nation? Well, it's a message, again, that's been there in previous things. It's that the people are to turn back to God. They're to turn away from their idolatries. They're to turn away from their apostasies. They're to turn away from their injustices. All of that was in the poetic portions. And Jeremiah just summarizes it in these words. Amend your ways and your deeds. Cease doing evil. Learn to do good. Amend your ways. It's a call to repent. It's a call to leave the ways of self-interest and self-centeredness and self-pleasing. Turn away from your evil deeds. And then God says, I will let you dwell in this place. Now this place likely is referenced not to the temple, it's the city, it's Judah, it's the land that God promised to a people who walked with him and trusted him and believed in him. Not an apostate people. Again, every time the people forsake the Lord and began to worship other gods, you read the book of Judges again and again, they're taken into captivity by some foreign nation until they cry out in the midst of their woe and God sends a deliverer to restore them. That scenario happened over and over and over again. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Ultimately, God sent him to King David, but even then, Constant apostasies, constant moving away from God, away from his word, and sadly coming to trust in the externals of religion, coming to trust in temple rather than the God of the temple, the trust in external rituals rather than the trust in the living God. And again, as we saw, I think, in the introduction to this whole book back at the beginning, is that at this point, Jeremiah is going to be doing what God told him his ministry was, which was to tear down and to pluck up and to destroy. 
And when you see this play out, it's first of all, you got to destroy this whole concept of temple as the ground of one's assurance and confidence of safety. Now we nothing can happen to us because we got a temple here, which is the temple of the Lord. And so Jeremiah says, in the light of the amending of the ways that he calls them to, he says, do not trust in these deceptive words. Jeremiah has a particular words that they use that uh, are really deceptive. This is not reality. What were their words? The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. Three times. He's affirming that that's where their confidence lies. Not in the God of Israel. Not in holy, holy, holy. The Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. That's what the angels of heaven cry. They cry the holy, holy, holy. No holy, holy, holy here. Temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. Regardless if we're holy or not holy, if we're consecrated to God or just forsake God altogether, we have this temple here, and that's the guarantee of our safety. I mean, think of it. When the Assyrians came and the snack rib at the gate of Jerusalem, and they were going to ransack the city, and they were going to take it into take the people into captivity and the Assyrian assault upon Judah. What did Hezekiah do? He went into the temple, didn't he? Brought the letter of the Rabshakeh into the temple, laid it out before the Lord, prayed, Isaiah came, gave him the promises, God delivered the nation. Hey, we got a temple. That's our safety. That's our protection. Isn't it sad that these deliverances of God, instead of bringing the people to praise the God of heaven, who has done such wondrous things for them, put their confidence in a, in, in, in a building. Our trust is in a building. Not the God who dwelt in the building. I mean, the God who dwelt in the building is the God of heaven and earth. And yet they're, they're so limited in their perspective. They're so externalizing religion. And they're using it really to cover over the reality of their unwillingness to follow this God. Their unwillingness to be obedient to this God. They don't want to amend their ways. They're happy with their ways. They don't want to change. <laughs> Why do they need to change? Things working out well for them. Jeremiah says in verse 5, For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, and now he's going to really define for them what that's going to involve. It's going to involve if you truly execute justice with one another. You've got to start giving each other what's owed to them. You owe them love. You owe them compassion. You owe them interest. You owe them concern. You can't turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to the needs of your neighbor. You can't say, well, that's not my problem. You can't be like the Levite that goes to the man that was taken in by robbers and just go on the other, the other way, fearing ceremonial defilement or something. When need is right there, right before your very eyes. And you have the ability to do something. You have the ability to say something. You have the ability to provide needs. And you just don't want to because you're just all involved with yourself. And in fact, you go up to that man that was taken by thieves and say, well, let me see if he had anything worth value in his pockets. And if the, the robbers didn't already take everything, maybe you're going to take what's left over. Maybe there's a, a Ritz watch somewhere, maybe some loose change I can get him. Well, I'm my own pocket. That's what the people were really like. That's what they were thinking. No compassion, no concern to execute justice with others. And they were oppressing others. Not only not executing justice, giving people what they deserve, but they were taking from people what they 
what they wanted or what they could get. They were guilty of oppression. He says, if you do not oppress the sojourner, or here's some foreigner that's come into Israel, and well, who's going to care if we take his possessions for ourselves? Who's he going to turn to? He doesn't have standing in law. He's a, an illegal immigrant. You know, so, well, let's, let's see what we can take from the illegal immigrant. Because what's he going to do? So you go to the cops? They'll just send him to the, uh, uh, you know, the naturalization department and they'll get deported. So we have open season. Open season on the people who are most easily taken advantage of. The fatherless. Take from the orphan. The widow. Scoop, scoot on in. See, maybe, maybe her husband left her a life insurance policy. Maybe there's money to be found here. Maybe there are assets we can have for ourselves. And you exploit and you oppress. Then you shed innocent blood in the place. You even move to violence to get your way to fulfill your desires. You wound and hurt and are guilty of every kind of wicked action and wicked manifestation of heartless cruelty and injustice. What happened in Judah? A culture of cruelty. Read Habakkuk crying out of violence. Violence! Conditions similar to what happened in the world when God sent the flood upon the earth is that the earth was filled with violence. Might made right. If you can get away with it, why not? Look out for yourself. Don't be concerned about others. That's a culture of cruelty. When God calls his people to develop a culture of compassion, a culture of justice, a a culture of, of love, and of service, and of ministry, and of help, and of care and concern for others. That's what they were guilty of. But you know, all that ungodliness, that unrighteousness they were guilty of, was also rooted in the fact that they were worshipping cruel gods. They were worshipping the gods of the nations. And those gods of the nations were not gods of, of, of right and beauty and truth and goodness and justice. They were as cruel as their worshippers became become like the thing you worship. And the reason the nations developed cultures of cruelty was their gods. were capricious, arbitrary, cruel gods who approved of might makes right. Pro- approved of, of injustice. So along with being executing justices and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm that's really the root of all this is unrighteousness is rooted in ungodliness we, 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 we turn to wickedness because we, we serve gods of wickedness we serve gods of self-interest we serve gods of, of narcissistic what's in it for me we serve gods of materialistic gain we serve gods that say, say pleasure is the great pursuit of life we go after our own desires regardless of who it hurts and who it wounds and what we do to other people. 
know, all those things, materialism, egotism, narcissism, operating on the pleasure principle, are all practices that the gods of the nations approve of. That's what they do. The great gods would ascend, descend from Mount Olympus to produce all kinds of wickedness, all kinds of seeking out their own pleasures and their own desires and their own needs. You know, there's a, there's a, I think it's the Babylonian flood account. You know, I'm still talking to Jan about the fact that there really are universal stories about a, about a flood in the ancient world. And it's an interesting thing to read uh, some of those accounts. Uh, you know why the gods brought the flood according to the Babylonians? It's because those human beings were just making too much noise and the gods couldn't sleep. Imagine that. Imagine worshiping that kind of god who says, wait a minute, I'm looking to get some sleep and these human beings are making so much noise, I'm just going to obliterate them. The God of the Bible obliterated the inhabitants of the world because of their wickedness. Gave them 120 years to to repent and and, and they didn't. It's the whole matter of the iniquity of the Amorite becoming full. You see these nations sacrificing their children to their gods. I think it was Philip Schaff, the historian, that said that man's religions are among their greatest crimes. The gods they worship and serve are amongst the most wicked beings and entities that one could conceive of. I mean, imagine worshiping a god who says take a plane and smash it into a building and kill thousands of people and declare the greatness of that god when you're doing it how horrific is that how horrific is that again I'm not saying all Muslims would practice such a thing but I'm saying there are people that did in the name of that god there are people that did did wicked things in the name of Jesus but my point is it's not representing the god of truth to follow anything but the patterns of life that he's called us to that create a culture not of violence, not of cruelty, not of self-interest, not of self-will, but of love and service and ministry and care for others. Caring for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, not shedding innocent blood, and not rooting our practices in the worship of false and cruel deities. God says, if you do this, if you mend your ways, I'll let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Again, there was a giving of the land to their fathers forever, but their sons didn't have a a license to keep the land apart from obedience. A part of that forever aspect of the land is that it's a picture of the ultimate inheritance. The inheritance of Israel in the land is, 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 is but a picture. It's a type and a shadow of what the 37th Psalm says, the meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Which is where Jesus takes up that very language in the Beatitudes. There's an inheritance to come 
And it's not necessarily a plot of land in the Middle East. It's the new, new creation. It's the new world that God will renovate with the coming of his son and the salvation that Jesus comes to bring and bringing in a new creation. I think that's where the forever aspect comes in. Abraham sought a city that had foundations whose builder and maker was God. He didn't possess anything upon the earth, but he possessed a heavenly reality, a heavenly inheritance. Once again, he calls them not to trust in deceptive words to no avail. And then he brings them to see the hypocrisy of these religious practices they are engaging in to just shelter them from the judgment of the God who will judge them for these very sins. And they think somehow they won't be judged for their sins because they go to his house. How ridiculous. He says, will you steal? Murder? Commit adultery? Swear falsely? Make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known? In other words, if you break every one of the Ten Commandments, every one of the things that God said is sacred, if you live with utter indifference to everything that God says is sacred, and you violate all the sanctities of God's laws. And then, and then, you come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered, we're delivered. Hey, we're forgiven. Everything's right. We ask, God, we ask Jesus to forgive us. And forgiveness is then viewed in a, as a very cheap commodity. There's nothing that ever calls us to, to repentance. You know, the psalmist says there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared the fact of forgiveness brings an abhorrence of the sins that we have to ask forgiveness for it brings us to be humbled before the living God and to be turning away from these sins that we might walk in paths of righteousness and peace and goodness for his name's sake you say we're delivered only to go on doing all these abominations I mean, if this is my house, and you're the kind of people that come and worship me, this house that's called by my name, what is this house actually? It's a den of thieves. It's become a den of thieves. The people that have robbed the widow and the orphan of their rights. The people that have stolen. The people that have murdered. The people that have committed adultery. The people who have sworn falsely. The people who are worshippers of other gods you've robbed me God says of the honor, the glory, the praise that is my due, you're thieves you've stolen from me and others what you owe them that's why sin is seen as debt in the New Testament you forgive us our debts we're debtors we have not given people what we owe them and we've robbed them of what we owe them because we owe it to them. We owe them justice. We owe them love. We owe them dignity. We owe them compassion. And if we've not given them what we owe them, we've cheated them. We've robbed them. We've stolen from them. We've stolen dignity from them. We've stolen rights from them. We've stolen what's equitable and fair from them. And we've stolen it from God as well. We're debtors in great debt. Because we fail to pay our debts. We fail to pay the things we owe. 
Jesus, of course, takes up this language when he goes into the house of God and he cleanses it from the people that were just making it a money-making operation. We'll make merchandise of the word of God. We'll make profit from the worship of God. And zeal for his for God's house ate him up so that he went into the house of God and he cleared it out of these evildoers. What right have they to come into God's house with these evil motives and these evil actions and these evil deeds? And above everything, they've forgotten this. If this indeed is God's house, has not the owner of the house seen what's gone on in his house? Does he not know? Has he not seen? Is he unaware? He says, Behold, I myself have seen it. There's one final argument that this temple sermon is to lay before the people, not only to indict them for the fact that they don't listen to God's word and they've embraced deceptive words, that they fail to treat others in the way they should, and they've failed to treat God the way we should. They've broken God's commandments and they thought we can come into God's house and think, Temple of the Lord, it's our security. Temple of the Lord, it's our safety. Don't you have sanctuary in a church? Remember Adonijah went into the temple of the Lord thinking he'd be um, safe from the hand of Solomon? Solomon says, no, we don't recognize such a thing. Take that evildoer who's hanging on to the hordes of the altar and separate him from the altar and pierce him through. And he, he was murdered in an act of justice for his rebellion against Solomon's rule. It's not a place of safety necessarily, especially when the adversary is God. God knows the things that you've done. And God is the one who's going to judge the nation for their sins. It's not a place of safety. But then Jeremiah is told to give them a little bit of a history lesson. Go now, he says, to my place that was in Shiloh. I don't think he's actually telling them to take a trip to Shiloh, but he's, you know, go now in your, in your understanding. Go now and understand this. There was a place where when they entered into the land and the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the land to lead the people, that the Ark settled in a place called Shiloh. And it was there that the priests would offer sacrifice. It was there that the people would come and find out God's will for the Urim and the Thummim. It was there where God made his ways known. And it's there that his people came to worship. See what I did to it. That sanctuary, that former sanctuary, before the temple was built, before Jerusalem became the place where God would make his name known. See what he did to that former place. Because of the evil of my people Israel. There was no protection. That sanctuary didn't endure. And the people of the north didn't endure. Because again, Shiloh was in the north. And the north experienced the Assyrian invasion. Though it had its own sanctuary at one time, it didn't preserve them, didn't protect them. Don't think this sanctuary in Judah is going to protect you. 
The evil of my people brought a just judgment against them. And now because you've done all these things, declares Yahweh, when I spoke to you persistently, came to you again and again and again, I sent my servants the prophets, calling them to get up early in the morning and go out and call the people to repentance again and again and again. When I called, you did not listen. You did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, this house in which you trust. But you're not trusting me. You're not trusting my words. You're not obeying those words. You're trusting in lies. You're trusting in deception. To the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. Again, there's precedence for this. Sin brings divine justice. Sins that's not turned from and not repented of is not going to save you from a just judge whom you have set yourself as an adversary to. When you've come into his house and think deliverance is yours, even though that you've lived in this appalling, abominable, heartless, cruel, oppressive manner. Shiloh didn't persist. This house will not persist. And you will not persist. I will cast you, he says, out of my sight as I cast out all of your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. The northern kingdom was destroyed. The southern kingdom will be cast out of God's sight. will be sent into exile. It won't be a complete and permanent and full judgment. There will be the remnant. They will return. But what a lesson. Not to trust in lying, deceptive words. Not to trust in external rituals. To make God our trust. To make Him our refuge. Not the building. Not the place of worship. I tell the story of going down to the city, as we did in the old days. We did almost regularly for the tree Rockefeller Center, and just to see the city at Christmas time. And so we were at that area around Rockefeller Center, and across from that, of course, I guess on Fifth Avenue was St. Patrick's Cathedral. And we thought, let's, let's, go, let's go see what the Catholics are doing today. Let's, let's, let's go, you know, those Protestant folks, and invade St. Patrick's Cathedral. It was closed. Always seems to happen. And there was uh, these folks that were from out, out of towners who were disappointed. Well, we were disappointed. We would have liked to have gone in. But uh, they were disappointed for another reason. This woman had things to pray for. This woman had dealings with God that she had to have. And she had to have it in relation to the building. The building was a vital component of her relationship to God. And so you saw her take her body and press it against the doors of St. Patrick. And I asked her what she was doing. She said, oh, I'm praying. Well, uh, you think you'd be heard more because you're doing that against... The- yes, and yes. in fact, that's exactly what she thought. I came to pray in the cathedral. And my prayers will be heard in the cathedral. And I can't get in the cathedral, so i got to get as near to the cathedral as possibly I can. Because our trust ultimately came to be in the building. I hope her faith was better than that, but I mean, sometimes you wonder. People doing such a thing, it seems so rooted in deceptive words. 
seems to be rooted in superstition or the inability or out of the building. God is, hears the cries of the righteous. God hears his people who cry unto him day and night. It's not where you pray. It's how you pray. Jesus told the woman at the well, the hour is coming, and now is, when no longer in Jerusalem will they worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship, we know what we know, but salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming when the worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God's concerned not about the place of worship. He's concerned about the way we worship. And we worship in sincerity. We worship by the Holy Spirit. We worship in the power of God's truth. We worship in righteousness. We worship when we offer the sacrifices of our praise to a God who calls us to holiness, a God who calls us to amend our ways and to develop relationships of purity and of mercy and of justice and of compassion and of kindness and of love. Oh my God, help us to hear Jeremiah's temple sermon. We need such temple sermons in the churches today because hypocrisy tends to reign and externalism is not dead. And people's conception of what the Christian life involves is very poorly defined, not defined at all by God's words. Let's keep from deceptive words. Let's hear the word of the Lord. And let's worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the prophecy of Jeremiah. We're thankful for the challenge that such words placed upon the ears of all in Israel and Judah who heard his words and the challenge it lays before us as well. Not to be guilty of the kind of hypocrisy and the kind of false confidences that the nation of Judah was guilty of in the days of the prophet. Such things exist today. They exist in our hearts. Lord, we need sincerity before you. We need honesty before you. We need a commitment to justice and truth and righteousness and peace and all the things you call us to be and do as your people in our relationships with others and our service to your name. Give us, we pray, the grace to not be guilty of a culture of cruelty. Not in the church. Not in the church of Jesus Christ. Love should prevail. Kindness should be the order of the day. Mercy and justice should be what we pursue with our neighbors. And we pray that we would have the grace to amend our ways to not just be hearers, but to be doers of your word. We ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to receive our thanksgiving for the blessings of another Lord's Day. Encourage us to walk before you unto, unto all well-pleasing, to bear fruit in every good work, and to be ever increasing in the knowledge of God, as we'd ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.